Welcome to Gospel Rant. This is our Gospel Rant Christmas podcast for 2019. I'm Dr. Bill Senior. This is the second Christmas Gospel Rant. We did one last year and it was very well received. Our hope is to make it a rant. I mean, we take up the challenge of shining new light, uh, better light on the Christmas story. We're not afraid of being a little provocative, as you'll see. It's dialogue anyway, and, and you know, this is the Gospel app, and Take Heart and Forgiving Path. You can disagree if you want. In fact, we encourage that uh, for the sake of dialogue. So welcome to the Gospel Rant Christmas Podcast 2019. Frankly, it's a pretty easy task to rant about popular presentation of the Christmas story. It's been told and retold so many times that it's become naturally affected or infected with so many cultural misstatements and misdirections. And look, we don't have to look any further than at nativity scenes. Joseph and Mary look more middle-class white than they should. Three wise men. I mean, we don't really know the number. And they likely came much later. The animals who were there, right? But the Bible has zero record of animals hanging around with a newborn infant. Look, don't get me wrong. I love children's Christmas pageants. I really do. I remember once at a, a church, there was a runaway camel. A young boy in a camel outfit just started running around the building. I loved it. But hey, uh, you know, it's all fodder for a rant. One of the problems of our modern lenses is that we lose some of the humanity of the event, the things that we can connect with, the things that cause us to resonate Let's look at Mary for a little bit, and I think I can prove this to you. Over the last 2,000 years, she has become an ethereal icon of maturity and spirituality. I mean, frankly, a little emotionally detached, uh, a little too in control humanly, and, and that makes her hard to connect with, and we lose some of the power of the story. She's largely been portrayed as almost superhuman, super spiritual. But honestly, if the truth were told, I really suspect that at the time, if we could transport back, we would see that she was a normal, regular, lower middle class teenage Jewish girl who, though she lived in a different culture, at a different place, at a different time, she still had the same hormones and emotions and reactionary tendencies that teenage girls feel today. I think we should be trying to connect with her far more than trying to make her look worthy or perfect, Mary. So what we know of Mary, uh, what little we know of Mary, comes from gathered pieces from the various gospel narratives. We know that she's living in Nazareth, but she doesn't belong there. She belongs in the royal city of Bethlehem, for she is of the grand tribe of Judah, a descendant from Israeli royalty. But now, She's living in the easy-to-hide-in hills of Galilee and a blue-collar town of Nazareth, way in the religious and, and societal sticks, a long way from the royal court. Maybe she was oblivious to the impoverishment of her people. Uh, maybe she was unaware of the tragedy of her long-lost glory of royalty. I mean, she's a teenager after all. Maybe she's oblivious to the harsh oppression of Rome. It's just all around her. She's just an adolescent girl. Maybe she's become used to more modest goals, lower bars, where people have been in slavery for so long, oppressed in so long, occupied for so long. Maybe she, on the other hand, has kept her sense of worth, r relatively speaking. 
All right, I don't think so. I think we're led to suspect something else. So here's the context. Per Luke's rendition, an angel appears to Mary to tell her that she will become mysteriously pregnant with the Son of God, whatever she could possibly have imagined that meant. And her reaction, I think, is very human. I think it's very reasonable. I think it's clear. She reacted in the Greek, diatarasso, which means greatly troubled. In modern neurological terms, a fear cycle kicked in her brain. I, I get it. I relate to that. And this would have meant that she was as human as you or I. Her amygdala would have ignited. Her frontal cortex shut down. This is where she reasoned. Her limbic system, the midbrain, signaled cortisol release, and her entire body slammed into fight, flight, and freeze. That's what it means to be human. You gotta, we have to be able to relate to that. And the angel didn't help didn't alleviate her fears when he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Oh, my goodness. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Come on. There's just no way that when she heard that, that first of all, she made any sense of that. But really, humanly speaking, that she would have remained calm, saintly, emotionally detached, serene, as some want to imagine her. The power of God will overshadow you? I mean, really? Come on. And first of all, the power of God, I mean, the power of God, the presence of God, the, the Shekinah glory of God coming anywhere close is frightening enough. And in and, and, and her brain, what, what would that mean? What would it feel like? Do I want to participate in that? Run! Is this judgment? Is this punishment? Is this an opportunity? What will God see in me when he comes that close, right? Has anybody ever else thought that? I mean, who could take such a closeness? We need boundaries. Who could survive such an intimate touch? Even the temple has a curtain, right, to protect the, the priest from this presence of God. So what chance would she have? What chance would I have? Episciazzo is translated overshadow here by my Bible. This imagines to the Jews, this, that dark, frightening cloud that hid God's glory in the Old Testament when the, when the intimate, personal, divine presence of God came into the tabernacle and then again into the temple later and shut down worship. And it just shut it down. It drove all the people, including the priests and musicians, to the ground prostrate. There's no way this girl could have been humanly prepared for this. Her brain would have been in huge shock mode. I mean, think of a time when that would have happened to you. I mean, that your brain going into shock mode. And then we're told after the angel left, she urgently, I mean, immediately hoofed it to the hill country. She had to get out of there, right, to spend some time with family there. Elizabeth, who had a similar visitation from the heavens, it turns out. Uh, so what was Mary feeling? What was she thinking on this journey, preparing for the journey? Was she reeling with anxiety still? Was her, was her cortisol still affecting her brain, her body? Well, let's see. This is what she tells Elizabeth in Luke 1, 46 to 53. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state. We'll come back to that of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has, uh, verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble uh, same word as above. We'll come back to that. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. So in verse 48 and 52, she autobiographically refers herself as being humble or in a humble state. It's the Greek word typenos. 
It can be translated as humble, but has darker connotations, heavier connotations, more frightening connotations. It's true. In common use, the range of meaning extends from, you know, being humble by choice. She's such a humble person, all the way to the extreme of what one feels who has been physically violated. I was humiliated by what was done to me or what was taken from me. Now, for religious Jews, and we see this in Judaism of the day, the writings in Qumran, the meaning is often a posture of bowing and being spiritually submissive to deity. But for ordinary Romans, right, and, and Galilee was filled with ordinary Romans, such typenos, such lowliness is looked upon as being ashamed, being humiliated, uh, and is to be avoided and overcome by act and thought. You don't stay there, you fix it. Well, this testimony of Mary, honestly, I'll admit it, could technically go either way. In one case, she comes across as a spiritual person who's not proud or arrogant, just a spiritually submissive individual, a good example of what an ideal Jewess, uh, if that person ever existed, might look like. And maybe that's how you've imagined her. That's probably how your Sunday school presented her. No judgment. But I think the scene looks more like Mary expressing inner pain that happens when her world was rocked without her permission, and she feels exposed and helpless to stop it or fix it. I, we get that experience, right? We can connect with that. See, not only was there this long-awaited return of God to Israel through her somehow, again, it's crazy, but also, let's face it, from just the human aspect, she was now pregnant out of wedlock. There was a frightening social stigma that happened all too quickly, particularly in honor-shame cultures like first-century Israel. In a moment of time, due to nothing that she chose to do, she became a person of shame and would no doubt be rejected by her family, her former friends, her girlfriends, her, her tribe, her village. And it's as a necessary matter of honor. This is just what honor-shame cultures do. And she would have been left ashamed, humiliated, oppressed, alone, judged, isolated, uh, in kind of a group of lower caste of humans who are rejected, uh, not worthy of honor or deference, unclean before God. That's ironical, right? And not even worthy of normal social kindness. And maybe at this point in the story, she would have been afraid of that happening, and it will. She would be exiled. That's a word that would have brought fear and shame to any Israeli because they knew what that felt like. Uh, that's their story. And, and, and the difference is, in Israel's case, it was their fault. In her case, it was not even her fault. So I need not mention that this is even more obvious in highly moralistic religious contexts such as the first century. So not only is it an honor-shame culture, it's also an honor-shame religious culture. This is not good for her. Mary had to be hurting she had to be looking ahead to what her life would be, and she had to have felt despair. Some, she had to have felt anger and rage and depression and sadness, confusion. She had to wonder about where her God was and what was God being to her. Did she do something wrong? And after all, she was innocent of, of, of at least having sex before marriage, after all. And not that anyone would believe her or could believe her. I mean, she has to see that, humanly speaking. Taipanos. Taipanos could capture all of those turbulent emotions that until her time with Elizabeth, she probably had to handle by herself and in secret. And these are all shame family of emotions. 
again, this is different from the shame family of emotions that our ancestor Adam and Eve would have felt. They shamed themselves by their choices, not Mary. This has got to have been more maddening for her. It's unfair. It's unjustified, right? It's un. It's just unjust. How would you feel? And don't just give the right Sunday school answer because Mary was human. Per Joseph Burgo, there are four categories that ignite this nasty shame family of emotions in everybody to one degree or another. And I think Mary was hit by all four of them all at once. The first one is falling short of expectations. When we fall short of, of our own expectations or the emo- expectations of others, we feel shame family of emotions. And of course, the expectations for a righteous Jewish was that she would remain chaste until married. Her reputation, her righteousness, as well as her family's righteous reputation was at stake. All of that was on Mary's shoulders. Unchaste women had only three career lifestyle options. They could be beggars, pagan temple prostitutes, or standard run-of-the-mill prostitutes. And her brain would have sent signals that she had become a disappointment to her family, her people. She would have had huge daddy issues, as she likely saw or imagined looking into her father's eyes when he got the news of his anger, his sense of betrayal, his maybe his disgust at her. This is the person that she most likely wanted to please. She would have felt shamed families of emotions, undeserved, unwanted. In her brain, if it's like mine, she would be wondering if her life was ruined, if it was over. The second pillar of uh, a source of shame family of emotions per Burgo is unwanted exposure. Well, this one's easy. When people began to see her pregnant, more signs of the pregnancy, swelling in her in her uh, abdomen, her womb, it will get a lot worse. And there's no way to hide this one. And not eventually. Sure, she could run to the hills for a time, and maybe that's why she did it out of shame. But she's going to return with an infant. Can't hide that. The third category is unrequited love. After all, Mary had been a faithful child. She deserved love and respect of her family as, as much as anybody. She earned it. And well, she didn't lose it by, uh, by acting disrespectfully. And yet all efforts to reach out to them in love, for help, for understanding, they will be rejected. By the way, with everyone except remarkably Joseph. But that's another story for another time. Unrequited love. The underlying plot of all rom-coms, hard to watch, much less to play a role. Look, she has to be feeling helpless, alone, lonely, whew, disconnected. Those she loves, who she would rightly expect would love her, do not. Exclusion. The last category, she would no longer be welcomed in her family. She would no longer be able to hang with former friends or, or to to listen to teaching and dialogue in the synagogue. This is so much worse than being unfriended on your smart device, but it's in the same category. Think about being kicked out of a group that you should be a part of, Uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend break up with you for no good reason, or perhaps maybe you've experienced a divorce exclusion. You weren't any in good standing, and in the next moment, you're rejected, despised Audi. What would you feel? I think that's what Mary's feeling. What I'm seeing is that I would be really surprised. I would be stunned if Mary didn't feel some or most of these things. And I can connect with these and whether she could put these into words or not. And if she's not feeling these, she's not human. She's a caricature. She's a cartoon. Nope. I'm suggesting that Mary was a real person who really knew shame and being shamed. And in this case, by the way, she knew being shamed by God himself. That's a hard thing to say. But 
God shames for his own higher purposes. There's a new category of shame that we, I don't, I don't know if we do, but let's call it redemptive shame, shame for ultimate glory. Having said that, though, there's another conversation for another time. I think it would have felt like run-of-the-mill shame to Mary's turbulent uh, brain. But Pastor Bill, wait a second. I'm reading the text, and it looks like she's praising God. That doesn't fit with her being in a fear cycle, does it? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. My answer is no and yes. And I think that if we miss this, we actually miss the miracle of Christmas, or at least one of the miracles of Christmas. The good news to the Marys then and today is that God is not separate from her shame and shame family of emotions. God's favor, right, she mentions that, and his coming upon, quote unquote, is for people who, get this, know shame and shame family of emotions, whether it's obviously redemptive or not. So here it is. God incarnates his glory into cracked, oppressed, and emotionally beat up, shamed, and abused vessels. That's what he does. That's what he does with all of us. He's not waiting for her cry or self-awareness of her emptiness and shame, for her to fix it on her own. No, he intervenes and fills this empty, underachieving vessel with stunning, unimaginable glory. He sees in her his image. And look, it's smudged, it's corrupted, it's used, abused, it's sold to various bidders for pocket change, and still, at least to his eyes, he sees a recognizable masterpiece. Significance. She's doing immense glory due to that alone. And so he extends his glory to her. He comes upon her. He fills Queen Mary's womb. Nothing more intimate than that. He fills Queen Mary's room with his spirit, his son, the crown prince of the universe. It's a second creation account of sorts. The Lord, the Spirit, hovered over her particular emptiness, the darkness, the void left by this fallen place upon her soul, her inner being, her sense of worth and value, significance, security, belonging. And he speaks something new. He reveals his living, luminous word, his son. Within her lifelessness comes life. In fact, the source of all life, this new life, This new existence is very experiential. She would have noticed it. It's very existential. It is an enemy, get this, an enemy and curative for shame of all kinds. Eventually, perfectly, but even today it should be experienced little by little. Right? And and this would be shame that we know of, that we're aware of, and shame that we're not aware of, subconscious. This is good news for shamed people like me here on this planet. Um, particularly in this incivil planet. It's a solid truth, truth incarnate. Her life was blurry black and white images, but now it's glorious living colors, right? The humiliated one, Mary, is filled with perfect glory. Broken humanity is now filled with perfect humanity. The one with such little hope and dreams filled with all the hope of the world. Hope for her tribe, her people, for Joseph, Rome. When Mary touches Jesus, right, the pregnancy, and Jesus touches Mary, both are changed. She now experiences unbelievable glory, but in fact, it's only an hors d'oeuvre of the eternal glory waiting for her. Here we go. God fills shamed people. That's that's all there are. How does Mary put it? God lifts up shamed people, Typanos. God loves sinners. So when God comes upon the Taipanos of Mary, her heart is filled with a rush of miraculous agaliao, 
Luke 1, 46 to 53. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. There it is, agalia in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state, tapenos, of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, the tapenos. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. And Verse 47, agaliao, literally means to jump for joy. And Mary is trying to put down in words what her soul is experiencing in the middle of a social scandal where no doubt family and friends are turning away or rumors or innuendos or persecution or she's afraid that's going to happen and she's about to explode. Her life is ruined and then all of a sudden she is filled with God, with perfect unspoiled uh, humanity. And she's at the point of madness, one commentator uh, describes it the way he defines a galileao. She's hungry for significant security belonging, but, but now for a moment she feels filled. Maybe she now sees how hungry, how ashamed she really was, verse 53. And it's only possible to see that, I think, once you're actually filled. She was Taipanos, verse 48, humiliated, and now she's lifted up as a queen. Hey, listen, how does that hit you? That's great news, right? That's miraculous. This God, the God of Mary, is an infinitely attractive God. Scary, don't get me wrong. Frightening, don't get me wrong. But infinitely attractive. The God of the typical culturally affected modern Christian story is less so. I mean, please, will you consider rejecting the caricature of the Christmas story? You know, God loved this girl Mary because she was humble and submissive and perfectly sinless right? And God had looked all around Israel and only found this one lady. She was worthy. No, 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 don't go there. That's not good news for failed people like me, ashamed people like me. My brain rejects that. Better, God comes upon a unworthy, underachieving, ashamed teenage girl. And by the way, I haven't even mentioned the fact that women in that place and time were not often honored and treated with respect, certainly not as much as their male counterparts, right? Again, another topic for another time. And he lifts her in her shame and extends to her as she was his joy, his agaliao, through his coming upon her. Take all of the dopamine hits around your life to give you joy, uh, fun, excitement, Right? Could be career, friends, sex, drugs, emotional highs, psychological highs. Roll them into a single balls and multiply that a billion times. And that's what happens when God's agaliao was experienced by Mary. He just seems to shove it into her brain. Merry Christmas, Mary. So very cool. Hey, look, what are you hoping Santa's going to bring you this year? So this Christmas, come and be impregnated by the same spirit and agaliao. All right, I have to admit that sounded a little bit differently in my head, but I'm going to go with it. If you've never experienced that before, why not now? Ask God to come and extend his favor to you. If you've experienced that once before, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, ask the Holy Spirit in you to make you feel it again and again and again. There's no reason to carry your shame. And a galiao is so worth it. Come, Taipanos, post-fall men and women, Call to royalty in the court of celestials. Come and taste a galiao. O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
Um, let me give you one engage question if you want to chat about this. And here it is, the typical engage question from Gospel Lab. What resonated with you in this presentation of Mary? Where do you connect with her in your story? Hey, Merry Christmas from the Gospel Lab and the Forgiving Path. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, or art to make, or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, Search and follow the Messenger Movement podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.